0: Well, good morning. Welcome here. Uh, Happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers. As uh, David already greeted you, and I'm sure Andy did to an announcement, so I just want to also say, uh, moms in our church, we uh, love you. We appreciate you. Uh, Thank you for all that you do to uh, love God and love your children and model Christ-likeness. We uh, hold you in high esteem. We're very thankful for you uh, in our lives and in our church. And so, happy Mother's Day. I hope you all honor your mother very well uh, this Sunday uh, to the glory of Jesus. And Hey, this morning, we're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 9. You can get with me there, Mark chapter 9, and uh, we're going to be talking about today uh, greatness. Uh, the reality that within each of us is a desire uh, for greatness, this, this yearning to be noticed, this uh, desire to excel and be good and live a meaningful and impactful life. Uh, all of us have it, and in fact, some of us, some of us, it's just obvious and it oozes out of us. We just want to be great. Uh, others of us, it's a little more discreet, a little more hidden, but if you take time, even right now to look, you will find that deep down within your soul is the same reality uh, that you had that emerged when you were a child. I want to be first. Me first. This desire that is, when is my time to shine? And I'm looking for my breakthrough and I want to take center stage. And within each of us, we kind of ask this question, like what gives? Where does this come from? Is this from... Uh, my pride and my sinfulness is this come from god and his design for your for my life i want to propose this to you this morning that this innate desire for greatness comes directly from god but the problem is is that we often strive to fulfill the desire for greatness in all the wrong ways, according to the flesh and according to the world's idea of greatness and success. Whereas God has not just given this desire to us, but he's also shown us the path to what true greatness really is. And I wanna suggest this morning that there is a path to greatness that doesn't involve you being the center of the universe, that actually involves Jesus Christ being on the throne and the center of all that you say and all that you do and all that you think. And that, when we adopt that, uh, God's view of greatness, we, his view of greatness, we actually start living the life that he intended us to live. And so we're going to look uh, today at the reality that true greatness is not about me. True greatness is not about me. And so here's what we find in Mark chapter 9, verses uh, 30 to 41, uh, Jesus again leading his disciples on the path to what it is to truly follow him. And here's what he says in verse 30. Picking up from where we left off last week. Jesus again foretells his death and resurrection. They went from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples saying to them the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days he will rise again. But they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask. I want to stop right here before we read the rest and just understand this. Like, why is Jesus saying this again? I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. Uh, why is he saying this again? We get it. We get it. We get it. We've been through this. How many times in Mark? The true reality is though, the disciples didn't get it. They had this different picture of Jesus in their minds and their hearts. They thought Jesus was gonna be elevated. They couldn't reconcile their, their picture of an elevated Jesus with this reality that he was gonna actually suffer and die. They had a hard time reconciling that. Man, we give up everything we have to follow this leader who's just gonna end in death? Like, that doesn't, that doesn't fit with my thinking of how this all's gonna to run, run together. They hadn't had an experiential reality of a resurrection yet, and so it was messing up their system, and they were on, their, their system was in, in, on overload. They were, everything was going haywire minds. They couldn't couldn't bring the two together, the the, the reality of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. And so they had a hard time listening and understanding. Notice this, uh, to really follow Jesus, you have to listen and understand. You have to listen and understand. You have to ask God, God, give me wisdom. The disciples are just like us. It's so hard sometimes to understand. We're told things over and over and over again, but because of our preconceived notions, we just don't get it. Let's pray that doesn't happen to us today, not just with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but with the message he has for us today. Look what it goes on to say here praying that this would be our truth today that we hear and we understand. Subtitle is Who is the Greatest? They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, Why are you discussing? What are you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was going to be the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. So you want to be great, hey? Well, here's what it looks like. If anyone want to be first, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. And he took a child, and he put them in the midst of them, and taking, them in to, taking him into his arms, he said to them, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but also him who sent me. True greatness. Verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For I truly say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Greatness. Disciples long for it, we long for it. Jesus shows us what it is to be truly great in God's eyes. Let me stop right here and pray before we unpack this and apply this to our minds and hearts. Let me pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the day that we can first and foremost honor you. Yes, we honor our mothers today, but God, we want to honor you first and foremost. And how do we do that? We worship you with all that we have. We, we give you our minds. We give you our hearts. We give you our lives and say, God, we're here to learn from you. Help us to seek understanding. Change our lives, Jesus, according to your plan for what brings you ultimate glory and what helps me live my life to the best of my ability for your purposes you've planned me for. God, would you speak to us? Would you move us and motivate us to what true greatness really is? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you're taking notes this morning, you can write this down in your notes. Jesus' gateway of greatness actually comes through service. Jesus' gateway of greatness actually comes through service. This whole series, Follow the Leader, we've already learned that, man, we program the GPS of our life and Jesus turns that upside down. He takes us actually in a different direction than our natural inklings would would take us or or we gravitate to. In fact, he often takes us through that GPS of life through his word on streets we would never go down. He takes us down not Comfort Street and Easy Avenue, but he takes us down Humble Drive and Sacrificial Boulevard, And we see that happening again here in Mark chapter 9. When it comes to the idea of greatness, the world would say greatness. Yeah, I want greatness. Put me on a pedestal and bow down to me and listen to me and, and follow me and, and tell me I'm awesome. Where Jesus says that's not the path to greatness at all. By now you think the disciples would have gotten this message all this talk of suffering and death and watching how Jesus lived his life. It should have gotten by now that people aren't going to chase after them to get their autographs. In fact, they're going to chase after them to erase their name from all of earth. People aren't going to be carrying them away on their shoulders. They're actually going to be striving to put them underneath their foot. And for, people who are, for men who are the closest to God of anyone here on earth because they walked and talked with Jesus, you think they would have got these spiritual lessons by now. Look at the yeah, look at the conversation they're having as they're entering into Capernaum. They're debating the reality of who's the greatest. I'm the greatest, no, I'm the greatest, no, I'm the greatest. It's so not what we'd expect from men whom, let's be honest, three men who just came off this mountaintop experience with Jesus Christ, and they're beholding the glory of Jesus, the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, and you'd think they'd be like, man, Jesus is awesome, but no, they're arguing about, man, I'm the greatest. Think about the other disciples. They just watched Jesus deliver this young boy from a demon, and he was mute and seizing and foaming at the mouth, and he was delivered, and you think they'd be like, man, isn't Jesus awesome? But they're not. They're arguing about here who is the greatest. Maybe it's because the inner three were rubbing in their faces, they're kind of lingering behind the group, and they're kind of saying, you know, like, oh guys, we saw something you didn't see. We had this secret that we can't tell you we're greatest. And the other guy's going, You're not greatest, we're greatest. Well, who is the greatest? Regardless, isn't this just such an odd conversation to be having in the presence of the greatest of all time? This argument about who's greatest? You'd be like arguing who are the best evangelists. Like, I'm the better evangelist. I'm the best evangelist in the world with D.L. Moody or Billy Graham. You'd be like singers debating over who's the greatest voice with Frank Sinatra in the room or studious ones debating over, like, I think I'm, I think I'm the smartest in the presence of Albert Einstein or you basketball guys out there who think like, I'm the greatest. You're arguing about this. Well, M. Michael Jordan's just shooting hoops next to you. It's a little odd. It's a little... Strange. It's a little telling of where their hearts are really at. It's quite similar to our day, to be honest. Like in our day, in the Jewish day, rank and status was so important, so it was actually a natural thing for the disciples to be thinking about their position in the coming Messianic kingdom. And just like we battle the same thing, and so Jesus realizes this. But notice what he does. He's like, "Hey, what's going on, boys? Like, what what are you what are you arguing about? See this here." What are you discussing along the way? This is an interesting question because we know that Jesus already knows what they're discussing. Remember, he's God of the universe. He's better than that teacher that's running on the chalkboard with a little rearview mirror on the corner that's seeing everything you do. And they're like, I see you. He's better than the mom with supersonic ears that even when you mouth the words, she somehow hears them. He's better than the dad that comes down in the morning and says, son, you were past your curfew. He was like, how do you know, dad? I went by your room, you're sleeping. He's like, I just know. Jesus is the God of the universe. He has x-ray vision into everything that we think and the motives and attitudes of our hearts. He knows them better than we do. He discerns perfectly our every action. And so, is he really asking them? Like, guys, what are you thinking? I don't know. I want to join this conversation. No, he's putting them on the spot, a little test. He wants to see if they'll be honest. He wants to see if they'll... Let them know what they're really discussing. Yeah, in the presence of the greatest of all time, this battle of who's the greatest. Disciples are actually smart. Probably one of those awkward silence moments. They're, it's like, you know, when you were a kid and you got caught and you, you know they know if you're lying, so you don't want to lie. You know, you don't want to fess up because that's just going to make you look bad. Either way, you lose. The disciples are there. They're kind of like silent, probably beat red in the face. Caught. Jesus brings him into a little huddle. He's like, hey, come on, boys. I want to have a little dialogue with you. And, and notice what he says here. He doesn't rub it in their faces. The, what the heck are you doing talking about greatness in my presence? Like, you should be talking about me. He doesn't say, you dirty, rotten sinners. You're missing the whole point. You know what he does? I think it's because he put this in, innate desire for greatness within us. He actually points them to the proper path of what greatness really is. And look what he says here. You want to be Great. You want to find greatness in God's eyes? It's right here in the text. If anyone be first, if anyone wants to be first or great, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. Picture it. Private little meeting with his disciples, all gathered around, he's got the mic. Hey guys, you really want to be first? You must be last of all and servant of all. Mic drop. It's clear. Point made. Direction given. You guys really want to be first? Take the back seat of the bus. You really want to make a name for yourself? Why you, do you take the seat of the invisible person, the the, the the seat of less prominence at the table? You think you want to climb this ladder of importance? How about you take the bottom rung? want to make an impact with your life that really makes a difference for God how about you serve others and elevate them and hang with those that their opinion doesn't really matter in anyone else's eyes about who you are how good or bad you truly are here's the path to greatness accept little children into your heart into your life and minister to these that no one else will minister to you might think well if that's the path to greatness I win I love kids, they're cute and they're cuddly and, and who doesn't love kids if that's all it takes and yet you have to understand when children in the Bible aren't this picture of maybe elevation like we do, we elevate our kids and they're so special, they're so important and families make their whole lives around their kids and making them great and help them achieve their dreams and making sure that they're noticed. It wasn't like that in Jesus' day. In other words, in, 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 other, in, other words, in Jesus' day, kids were not seen as Romanticized examples of innocence and purity. You know, it's on the other end of the spectrum, in fact. In fact, kids were seen as weak, as those unable to fully keep the law, which meant that they were even sort of like not quite fully into the covenant of God in some ways. Although they were by birth, there's still some, they're kind of a status lower than everyone else. It's sort of like that mentality that we even sometimes see today, which is children should be seen and not heard. That's the way that. In Jesus' day, they saw children. So, this wasn't like, oh, yeah, we love kids. This was like, oh, uh, I got to spend my life with those that really don't matter. And even though the Bible paints children as a symbol of innocence and of helplessness and vulnerability, the people in that day didn't see it that way. A child in the Bible represents any helpless person, but especially a humble fellow believer whom true disciples were called to receive. It's such a message of really humbling oneself to be the servant of even those that nobody gives any regard to. It's interesting to note in this that the Ar- Aramaic word uh, here both means the same for children and servant. To receive the child, to receive the humble one or the least significant one, is to actually receive Jesus and then receive uh, the Father. You want greatness? That's true greatness. You want to receive me? You want to receive the Father's blessing and favor? This is the path to it, to be the last and the servant of all. This, my friends, is what to do with that innate desire for greatness. This is the the life that Jesus modeled for us. He wasn't hobnobbing with the political elite and the religious gurus of the day and the wealthy and the prosperous. In fact, when he interacted with them, he generally called them out, which is why they hated him so much. Jesus modeled for us a path to greatness that is not of position, but of passion for other people, the gospel way, the kingdom of God way. It's completely reversed to the way the world operates. And think about this. Think about Jesus himself. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus took the least place. He came to serve and not be served. If anyone were supposed to serve, he came to serve and not be served. He came to rescue the lowly, the greatest of all time, hands down, no debate. The greatest of all time shows us the path to true greatness. And he puts to rest once and for all in our minds and our hearts what true greatness really is in God's eyes. I know you want to be great. I want to be great. The problem is we strive for it by the flesh, by the world. And Jesus says you need to strive for greatness by God's standards, by Jesus' example and model. What are you striving for this morning when it comes to Greatness. You're striving for the ways of the world or the ways of God. I have to be honest with you, as your pastor, I know I'm supposed to be the super spiritual one, but I'm, I resonate with the disciples. I, I know I'm supposed to be on this wonderful path apart from all of you, but I'm on the same path with you battling the same things. And, and in my mind and heart as I read this this week, I realized that a lot of times we as Christians say the right things, but then we walk the same path as the world in so many ways. So I've come up with a little test for you this morning, a little like heart examination to see if you're truly pursuing God's greatness if you're stuck in the world's ways of greatness. And so as you go throughout this, just remember I'm not doing this to hammer you. I'm doing this to to show you the, the way of God to give you the life that is truly life that God's designed you for. But follow with me and ask yourself these questions as I ask myself these questions. Am I pursuing the great to be amazing in the world's entity, or am I pursuing awesome in God's economy? Well, here's, here's the, how the world perceives greatness, how the world pursues greatness. The world believes that greatness is desiring recognition. I'm gonna to climb to the top. I'm gonna to promote myself. I'm gonna be number one. Is that you today? It seeks praise. Tell me how good I am. Ah, oh, no, sharks don't. No, tell me again. You love the praise, but it's so hard to hear other people getting praise, especially if you don't think they deserve it. What about this to pursue notable tasks? Give me the upfront positions. All the menial ones, the behind the scenes, that's for somebody else. I, I have a little more to offer than that. What about this hangs with prominence? Pass by the regular people to hang with those who are important, who you think can enhance your your? value or your esteem. Did you know that I know? What about this one? Resents authority. Like, I'm so great. I don't need anyone over me. I don't need anyone to tell me what to do. I'm in charge in my home, in my work, in my community, even in my church because I'm so great. Well, this one aspires to titles. This is, this is the world's way to achieve greatness. aspires to titles and even honors. And Man, I love the title I carry. So I, I put it on the Make sure everyone knows the title I carry in my life and my position at work maybe. Maybe that medal I got way back when. I wear it all the time just so people know. Hmm. I'm convicted too, don't worry. Maybe we're a little more like the disciples than we thought we were. I want to remind you it's God's grace that you see this now, that you don't continue in this path, but that you turn and repent of your flesh and your sinfulness and your desire for greatness in the wrong ways and you turn and follow Christ in the way that he's designed you to, to pursue greatness. This is God's grace to us to lead us to the way, in the way of everlasting and joy and hope and fullness. Here's what it is to be awesome in God's economy. We see it right here in the text. It is, it is to get low. It is, it is to First Peter verses 5 and 6 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 6. Also the same thing in James chapter 4 verse 10. To humble ourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he might exalt you. To not aim for higher but to aim for Lower. What does that look like? What's it mean? It's actually the opposite of all the things on the list I read you from the world. It's it's not desiring recognition, but it's being content with anonymity. It's okay with no accolades and menial jobs and rubbing shoulders with regular people in the less thans of society. It's, it's oh, I'm good with being led and eager to listen. I don't really care about titles. I'm not into position. I'm into serving others to... Make them great instead of me being great. Humble yourselves. Therefore, to the mighty hand of God, so the proper time he may exalt you. It's not fighting for my own exaltation. It's, It's living after Jesus, letting him exalt you in the right ways in the right time. So you can bring him more attention and more prominence. It's getting low can only do this with Jesus in your life, with the power of Jesus living within you. But it is possible with Jesus Christ as I pursue the things of him. It's also this, it's serving hard. Uh, I love how it says to be servant of all. One commentator suggests the same word as slave. In other words, it's not a choice for me. It's my actual duty when I show up for, for God's roll call in the morning. It's like, what are you here for? I'm here to serve Jesus. I'm here to be your slave. I'm here to slave for everyone else. It's not the job I get. It's not, it's not finding the most important job. There's nothing above me, nothing beneath me. I'm just here to serve as you call me to serve. Again, think Jesus' life. He took time to meet needs and Invest in others. John 13, greatest example, he, he washed the grimy, slimy feet of the disciples, showing that he was here to serve. It's asking this question: how can I make much of Jesus today? And how can I elevate somebody else? Matthew chapter 25 shows a clear example of how we can actually serve others. In that passage, it's the separation of the sheep and the goats, the sheep on the right hand, the goats on the left hand, and Jesus saying the goats on the, the sheep on the right hand clearly understand the the fullness of God's love and power in a way that they've invested in other people, and he says to those on the right, part of the evidence of them being on the right is that they have fed the naked and they've, sorry, they've clothed the naked, they've fed the hungry. They've given the thirsty to drink, and they said to him, well, when have we done these things? And Jesus said to them, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came to me. When did we do these, God? When did we do these, Jesus said, when you've ever done these to the least of these, you've done them to me. That's what it truly is to live a life of greatness and serve, oh, so contrary to the way the world speaks of it. Galatians chapter five, verses 13 and 14, for you are called to freedom, brothers, And sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but instead, through love, serve one another. We've been set free, but not to run wild, but to serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the third path to greatness. Get low, serve others, the least of these who I'm not gonna give you any fame or any acclaim and love others. Love much. Colossians chapter 3, 14. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is in essence what Jesus is teaching his disciples love the little children receive them bring them in welcome them with people in your life instead of shutting ourselves in our homes and crossing our our arms when people come near us it's i know it's social distancing right now but it's it's embrace them maybe right now it's the virtual fist pump and the virtual high five and the smile like like we want people in our lives we're not created to be hermits or just do our own thing and take care of ourselves and our family. We're created to, to, to love others and welcome them into our hearts and our homes and our church. Especially the least of these. Especially the least of these, the widows and the orphans, the Bible says. Those whom everyone else casts aside. People that no one wants anything to do with, this is where the church comes alive as we realize that greatness Is actually not having a church of elites, but it's actually having a community of believers that involve everybody from all walks of life, and we walk together in harmony and in love that can only come through Jesus Christ. Plato asked this question How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? How can a man be happy, Plato said, when he has to serve someone? Jesus said this, true happiness is found only when one lays down his life for his friends. I know my heart, I don't know your heart. Let's all ask ourselves this question today. Am I excelling in greatness in the eyes of God? If I pimp my soul out to the ways of the world and I'm now singing one thing and reading one thing in the Word, but I'm living just like the world when it comes to greatness, God has a better plan for you, a path that He has designed that when we walk it, we know the full blessing of Jesus. Let's walk it together. Here's the second point of today's text. Just two points today. Here's the second point as we go on this I, with this idea of greatness, this idea of of what is great in God's eyes. Here it is: Jesus' path to prestige, prestige sidesteps spiritual competition. Jesus' path to prestige sidesteps spiritual competition. Look at verses thirty-eight to forty-one with me here. So as a learning these lessons, they're coming up against uh, this new scene. This scene is that there's this random guy who's casting out demons in the name of Jesus and it's getting the disciples all, all riled up and two points in this. One guy's casting out demons in Jesus' name. and The disciples are like, make him stop, make him stop. And then the other thing Jesus just tags on the end of this is this. He's talking about a cup of water. And if you give someone a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, you have a reward. So let's understand what's happening in here. I think it all has to do with greatness again. And so generally what's happening here is disciples are walking along with Jesus. John acts as a spokesperson in this scene. And John is, remember, a son of thunder. He sees this, uh, this injustice going on in his mind. He sees someone casting out demons in Jesus' name, but he's not one of the disciples. And so John, the sons of thunder is probably feeling the, the, the temperature gauge thundering up from within him, from his toes right up. And he's like, Jesus, teacher, teacher. He's a bit of a tattletale, right? A bit of a whiny tattletale from this text. Teacher, teacher, you know, rabbi, like master, sovereign in power with all authority. Like, this guy's casting out demons in your name and he's not one of us. Make him stop. We told him to stop, but he won't. Sounds like my house sometimes. Jesus stops and looks at him. is like, he's casting out demons in my name. That's cool. I'm okay with that. He's doing something good. It's in my name. And look what he says here. Do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. If he's doing it in my name, then this is good because we've learned from Mark 3, uh, Mark chapter 3, verse uh, 25, that Jesus told us that, Only in his name can demons be cast out. Satan doesn't cast out demons. A house divided amongst itself cannot cannot stand. And so Jesus is saying, yes, and he's doing good things, and it's in my name, and that just means that he's not gonna diss me later on, so let him be. You know, we get to this, and we start wondering, like, who is this guy, and what's he all about, and where'd he come from? We don't know anything about this man except that he's a someone. It's important, right? My grandfather always said that he was a somebody in his house, because my grandma would always say, like, Somebody left the cutlery out, and so like, there's only two of us. Clearly, I'm a somebody. This guy's a somebody, he's not a nobody, he's a someone. Is he one of the Jewish exorcists that used to cast out demons in Jesus' name, but had no desire for Jesus, no inkling to be one of his followers, he just did it as a mystical incantation, trying to derive Jesus' power and put it to their own means? Uh, Clearly it wasn't one of them, because Jesus put an end to that in Acts 19. He said, stop that, be done with that, don't go there. This man is actually a believer, clearly, because Jesus endorses it and says, go ahead with it. Just that he wasn't in the same camp as the disciples. So why would the disciples get all riled about this? What wonder if it's a jealousy thing. I think it's a jealousy thing. I don't wonder, I think it is. I really believe it is. Think back to the text that we, was preached last week by Pastor Brett. Remember the disciples tried to cast out this demon and failed? They're coming off this failure. Now they're seeing this guy that's not even one of the disciples and they're like, well, wait, wait, wait. He's not supposed to be able to do that. I am. Getting a little bit of jealousy going on. Probably they're also thinking that we're supposed to be the elite. We're the anointed ones who cast out demons. Who, who does anyone else think they are? We're part of Jesus' inner crew. Jesus sets them straight, though, pretty quickly. With a little proverb that says, whoever is not against us is for us. It's the opposite of what he says in Luke eleven twenty three when he says, whoever is not a, uh, you know, he who's not with me is against me. Same thing. Like, hey, hey, either they're for us or against us. Clear this guy's for us. Same thing Paul said when people were preaching in Philippians uh, chapter one. They're preaching preaching with envy and rivalry and selfish ambition while others are preaching with with true gospel hearts and love for Jesus and a heart to see people saved. Paul says, leave them alone. As long as they're preaching Christ, I'm happy. Jesus, in essence, is saying the same thing. As long as they're pursuing me and and bringing honor to my name and doing good things that I desire, then leave them be. One commentator says to us, ministry such as that of this exorcist brings glory to the name of Jesus. And must not be hindered. Even when it ignores the we, us, for what is important in he, him. So you saying, let, let them go. Let's not have divisions in the camp. Let's not be competitive in this thing. It's not about you. Greatness is not about you. In fact, he says, for truly I say to you, whoever does this, but also whoever gives a cup of water... Because you're a Christ follower, there's gonna be reward in heaven. In other words, there's a reward for this guy. He's doing what's right and good, just like there'd be a reward for you for welcoming little children and giving people cups of water. He's gonna get his reward. It's interesting to note that only a few times in the scriptures did Jesus refer to himself as the, as, as the Christ. We have to look at as Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ. Well, Christ means anointed one. Jesus, the anointed one. Notice he's doing this after Peter's confession that you are the Christ, already been realized by them in a company of his disciples, but he's affirming that I am the anointed one of God. And I'm calling you to a path of greatness. That is devoid of spiritual competition. Now, there's just lessons for us to learn in this. I know you get the point. It's very plain, very simple. I know you get the point, but there are some lessons to learn from this, I am convinced from my own heart and your heart. If we want to be great in God's eyes, here's what we have to do, brothers and sisters. We have to put the spirit of competition behind us when it comes to the things of Christ. There's no room for competition in Christ circles. There's no room for competition in Christ circles. I get it. Some of us are tempted to live our lives the same way in the world that we live in the church. And it just is incompatible. We have this inner drive for competition. So we apply it to every avenue of life and it shouldn't be in any avenue of life, but especially detrimental, we apply it to the lives of Christians and in the church, in our Christ circles. Our Christ circles. Our family's competitive. Games around the table are always interesting in my home, but I pray we're not competitive. We have to fight it for sure when it comes to the whole competition thing of who's best and who's greatest in God's kingdom. Think about this some people live their Christian lives always comparing and always evaluating and always judging people's motives and hearts and always jealous and always insecure. You know what Jesus is telling us here? Knock it off. Just knock it off. You do your thing for the glory of Jesus. You let them do their thing for the glory of Jesus. And make Christ the center. And you'll free yourself from the burden, but also be released to the joy of what it is to follow Jesus Christ. Remember 1 Peter 5. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here's how we ought to be in in Christ circles. We ought to be encouraging others and equipping others and emboldening others who cares that they are devoted to us as long as they are devoted to Jesus Christ. There's no room for competition in Christ circles. But there is more room for tolerance in church circles. It's again, it's here in the text. I know you guys are probably gonna make this a little uneasy, some of you, and you're gonna go try and study and find something different than I found, but it's right here here's the point. There's more room for tolerance in church circles. Why is it that we all seem to have, think we have the monopoly on God and the monopoly on the blessing of God and the favor of God. And if you think like me and if you believe like me and if you act like me and if you sing like me and do like me, then then surely you're in. And if you don't, then surely you're out and are missing on the fullness of God. Why is that? That's what the disciples are thinking here but you're not one of us. And God's like, they don't have to be one of you as long as they're one of me. And I'm not talking about, I know there's, there's, I'm not talking about those who stray from scriptures. The word of God is clear. Like, there's not tolerance for that in the church for sure. The, Bible being the inspired and fallible word of God, the source of all of our life and our direction in life and Old Testament, New Testament, all God breathed. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the gospel, the fact that God existed, he created, man fell, then he sent Jesus a redemption. There's no debates about those things that we can tolerate. I'm not talking about those things. I'm not even talking about Father, Son, Holy Spirit and, and the reality of Jesus Christ being the Son of God, divinely divine and human at the same time and came to earth to live the obedient life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we should have and deserve to die, to be the sacrifice, the propitiation, the the substitute for our sin, to provide us access to God, relationship with God and provide us life evermore as we follow him. I'm not talking about debating those things. There's some things that we cannot tolerate, but I'm talking about this. When people are biblically sound and have things as close as they can to the word of God. Why do we then think that we should talk down to them or minimize them or put them away because they're not exactly where we are? Isn't that a bit of arrogance and pride on our behalf? You and I don't have the corner on God. We're still in process. We're still growing. We're still understanding. We're not there yet. We're still tainted by sin. We don't see things perfectly clear. Why do we think we do and everyone else doesn't in our own lives, in our own church, in our own religious groups or spiritual denominations? Why do we think that way? That's not Jesus' way of thinking. It's not about whether they agree with us. It's whether they agree with him. I think about this all the time. There's gonna be a lot of others there is a lot of others used in amazing God ways on this earth that don't fit into my maybe theological grid. We're gonna be spending eternity with next door neighbors. You think about this? With next door neighbors that might even be from a different denomination but have understood the reality of Jesus Christ, repented their sins and put their faith in him and they might even practice it here on earth the way we do. But they're going to be our next door neighbors. They're going to be sitting beside us at the banqueting table. In harmony and fellowship. Worshipping with Jesus Christ. And celebrating the marriage supper with Jesus Christ. Isn't that going to be awesome? need to put some of those things aside here on earth. To have a bit of a picture of heaven on earth. People in heaven are going to be from all different demographics and denominations and doctrinal positions. Again, apart from the core, the major things are solvable. What's major and what's minor? You know, we can debate upon that forever. But the core of the scriptures, the core of what the Bible is teaching us about the reality of man, God, the reality of man, the reality of our need of Jesus. There's going to be people from all different de- denominations and, and even ethnic descent. We're all going to be there who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. God's been teaching me this a lot in the last couple of years. Been teaching me the same thing he's teaching the disciples right here. I don't know about you, but I need to hear it again. Often it's not about the great worldly success, it's not about competition and being the best. Pastors fall into this too all the time. You want to be truly great? You want to be truly great? You want to be first? How about you strive for last? How about you strive to serve Jesus and serve everybody else first? How about we put aside the competitive thing and instead encourage others and spur each other on and and sharpen each other and, and pursue Jesus together? That's greatness in God's eyes. It dawned on me as I was preparing this sermon that the greatest people in the world in God's eyes probably have no idea that they're great. Greatest people in the world in God's eyes aren't the people that you would see and label as being great. But it doesn't matter because God sees them as great and that's all that matters. Let's aim to be one of those people. We don't see ourselves as great. Others might not see us as great, but let's aim for greatness in God's eyes. Let's aim to live our lives for an audience of one, for an audience of one. And allow God to do in us and through us what he sees fit for his namesake and the growth of his kingdom. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this strong word this morning from your word. God, I pray that you'd penetrate our hearts. God, I pray where there's conviction needed, convict us, oh God, that we repent of our sinful ways and we turn to you, Jesus. We surrender our lives afresh to you and say, God, God, I want great in your eyes. Take me out of the equation and put Jesus in the equation. May I come to the end of me and the beginning of Jesus Christ. Oh God, help us to be a people, a, a individuals and a church and families and, and help us to be people who are truly pursuing what matters most in this life. God, I pray for those in the room here that don't know you as Lord and Savior. May they see, God, that the first step to greatness is recognizing that there is a God who sent his son, Jesus, to this earth to live and to die for their sin, that they might have connection with their father, they might have eternal life, and they might be actually put on the right path of greatness. We can't do this without you, God. We need this. Even believers have been believers for a long time. We desperately need your Holy Spirit, again, to touch us, to speak to us, to motivate us, to fill us, to empower us to live lives of true greatness. May this be so for your name's sake, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.